0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All The Things Podcast, episode number 12, Bootcamp to Web Developer with David Lindahl. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike?
1: Yeah, hey, Matt. Uh, so this week has been kind of a slower week for hat stuff, more client stuff, but um, upgraded my audio recording setup so that that's pretty cool i have a like a boom arm going so that the microphone's a little bit closer to my mouth should be a lot better quality i'm hoping let us know what you think uh and then the other thing is i'm doing this because i want to start recording uh, tutorials and posting them on youtube uh it'll probably start with something on view view related and then move on to whatever else i'm going to be working on later so definitely stay tuned for that uh what about you matt
0: uh, well, I, I also should have the same upgrades as you, but uh, but due to, a, due to a shipping delay, um, I will be having that probably either next episode or the episode after, so uh, whenever, we, whenever I can get over there, uh, I will also be upgrading to a boom arm, uh, so that will hopefully, I know we've had a couple of complaints about my audio levels moving, because I physically move in my chair. Uh So, <laughs> I mean, as people do, but of course, uh, the audio was going up and down because I was moving away and like more toward the mic and stuff. So hopefully that will allow me to move the mic as I move and then allow the audio, as you said, the audio quality to be a lot better. Um But as the title of this episode suggests, this is a bit of a different episode. So today we're going to be sitting down with David Lindahl, uh, a colleague and friend that just recently went through a major career change from a financial and investing expert to a web dev slash designer. You may know him from such endeavors as the appropriately named David Lindall photography or from the Instagram sensation that is Rainier watch uh, having recently gone through a coding boot camp and even more recently being hired as a UI developer, he is no doubt an interesting has an interesting and up-to-date take on breaking into the web development industry in 2018. Uh, this episode, or this like interview slash conversation, is actually going to be uh, a separate pre-recorded uh, session that we're going to cut to in a moment, so let's get this conversation started, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, we got David on the line here, but before we jump into that conversation, we're going to jump right into the actual segments, as we always do. So segment number one is going to be introducing yourself, so introducing David and his pathway to today. Segment number two is going to be discussing his education, specifically his bootcamp slash code academy uh, that he went to. Segment number three is going to be the first month on the job as an actual UI developer. Segment number three is going to be comparisons between class training versus self-teaching yourself. And then the last segment, of course, the recurring one, web news, phone cameras versus DSLRs. So let's jump right in. Let's get numbers, Let's get going on to segment number one. So, David, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to today.
2: Yeah, definitely. Thanks, uh, Matt. Appreciate it and appreciate you guys inviting me onto the podcast here. Um, I've actually been listening to uh, you guys since the beginning. I'm a few episodes behind, but I've definitely enjoyed all the content you guys are pushing out there. And I think that a lot of the people that listen to it um, would tend to agree, I think, with me. Uh, but yeah, starting with myself here. So I am a UI developer at a marketing agency here in Seattle which is in the Pacific Northwest of the US over in the top left corner uh and we build marketing campaigns for really cool brands uh we partner with companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Sony um, and a few other big companies and uh so my role specifically as a UI developer is to basically turn a lot of the really cool designs that we're working on for these brands into code um and as you mentioned I am really a recent developer I have only been coding for the last year or two and had pivoted my career from the world of financial services and economics and the stock market uh, into this recent role of web developer. And it's been a really fun transition. I always have had kind of a mind for the creative and really enjoyed um, capturing beautiful things through photography. And so that had led me to the world of development because I was kind of turning those um kind of design inclinations into visual things that I wanted to build. And so that naturally led to building brands and building kind of micro side projects. And of course, the best place to house those is online. And so years ago I started dabbling around with coding, uh, more more so just kind of downloading HTML templates and playing around with them. And uh, I didn't really know a div from a span, (laughs) Uh, but had some fun just getting things online. And that really um drew me in and I, I just love putting things online. I love building projects. Uh my wife would hate me, but I would probably never sleep or eat if um I could because I just I love getting things online. I love being a part of putting things together. Um that's, and that's web
1: development right there. Yeah.
2: Exactly. That's that's really why I pivoted my career a year or two ago and it just seemed like a natural fit. And I I love my job. I love being able to talk about coding. I love um, for instance, today we had a meeting where we talked about different design, uh, philosophies or, or different design strategies in coding websites. And that was, I was just sitting there going, I get paid to talk about this stuff. And, um, it's not all glory, of course. Uh, as you guys know, coding is a lot of sitting in front of a text editor and staring at text, which is magically transformed into websites and interactive experiences. So it can definitely be. Uh, Long days, but it's just, I'm just constantly in love with being able to put things online and being able to code things. Um, so that's, I guess that's kind of the long, (laughs) long story of my history. Um, I, I kind of have, I like to say I have this nice combination of a left side and a right side brain where I have creative and, um, stemming from those 10 years or so in photography as a freelance photographer and just a hobbyist and then, also, the analytics and the problem-solving that comes in handy really well with coding, and that stems from the background in financial services where I was an operations analyst and uh, anti-money laundering investigator, which is a pretty uh, pretty sexy title, but a lot of times it wasn't as fun as I'd like, and it wasn't as creative as I'd like, and that's that's ultimately what led me to being involved in this coding world.
0: Would you would you say then that because you you're sort of like into the creativity and that that you prefer the front end development or do you have any interest in doing more back end stuff in the future or On a
2: scale of uh 1 to 10 out of how much interest I have in back end I would say like negative 20 Um <laughs> <laughs> I love I love being able to touch things I love being able to uh kind of control what people are interacting with and <laughs> One example would be, so we'll talk more about this probably coming up, but throughout the process of where I was interviewing and applying at different positions, there's one specific job that was a full-stack developer job, and the coding challenge that they gave me, um, because in these interview processes you have phone interviews and then you have coding challenges to complete to make sure that they know you can code. And one coding challenge that I had for a certain company was really sort of a back-end um, application. It was all in Node. There's no front-end. And so I slaved away on that. It definitely kicked my butt. I did not enjoy it at all. Uh, and that was definitely a realization of, I need, Hey, I need to focus a lot more in front end. And because that's, that's just what I love. That's my nuts and bolts. And the next coding challenge I got was actually for the current job that I have now at Indigo Slate. And it was a really, really fun challenge where they gave us the video of a certain interaction. And we basically had to um, come with our, come up with our own interaction and code it. Just based on that content that they're giving us. And that was a total front end project. And I just, I loved it. I ate it up. So absolutely, front end is my, my jams. I love the design of things. I love reading design articles. And I actually am sort of a wannabe designer. (laughs) And we'll see if I eventually transition to the world of UX and design. Um, That kind of is something that's in the back of my mind as it's, near and dear to me. But uh, right now, I definitely want to focus on building a foundation in front end development and getting into the code.
0: That's definitely that it's interesting that you bring that up, because it's definitely one of the things that we're kind of challenged with. It's like none of us, you know, Mike and I are more so are more so technical, uh, especially with our educational backgrounds. But it's sort of like, you know, we're running a small business, so you kind of have to wear all the hats. And then I kind of do most of the UI UX, like design and that type of stuff. Just because, like, I'm doing the front end, so it makes sense, right? Like, I can kind of, like, make the UI something that I know I can build, you know, quickly or whatever during, because I'm usually the guy uh, who also, like, for the small business side anyway, quotes the the time frames for people. So, like, I don't want to make a UI that's, you know, super extravagant and then doesn't fit the customer's goals um, fits, fits the customer's goals in terms of time or even what they're going after specifically. So it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because we, we've had several discussions of like, well, we should, you know, let's hire like a full time developer on board or let's get like a contractor one on board or something like that. But then it comes down to the fact of, you know, you can really like, as the front-end developer, you kind of get exposed so closely to UI, UX, and as long as you're paying attention to your experiences, you, like, you really can do it. You're not focused in it, but a lot of UI, UX guys are also front-end guys to an extent, right? There's kind of, like, there's always the jack-of-all-trades and then the the guys who focus. So it's just kind of interesting that you brought that up because that, that's been a discussion point that we've had almost throughout our careers. Mm-hmm. Mike and I have had something where it's like, well, do we need somebody to make this Photoshop or do we just, like, you know, can we just... You know, I can't draw it, right? Because I don't, I don't have any of that type of experience. But it's like, well, I could make it in CSS probably, and it'll look okay. Like I understand how applications look, so that's you know that's sort of one of the one of the one of the uh, conversations. So, would you say that you have any skill in like Photoshop or anything like that, or are you just, or like how how would you design a site if you go to design it from scratch like today kind of thing?
2: Yeah, so I've actually. I, I have experience in Expo, or excuse me, in Adobe and in Photoshop and those sorts of things more for photography than design. Um, so what I would do today is, and I've actually done this for clients on the side because I do freelance development, um, for typically more small businesses in the area here. Uh, but what I've done in the past is I, I do kind of a wireframe low fidelity mockup in Sketch is actually the program that I use the most. Uh, which is kind of like a, um, Adobe InDesign, I think is kind of the closest thing to it, maybe if I remember right, but it's, it's a design software for Mac and basically it's uh vector based and it's, it's great for whipping up quick design sites that I would do. And it's kind of, it's an in-between of a high fidelity mock-up and uh, just a wireframe. And so a lot of times I'll start on paper with a wireframe, but then eventually the client will want to see something a little bit more uh, exact that they can kind of stick their hands on. And so, and take a look at, it. and that's where I'll turn to sketch and and design something myself there and then go from there and code that out for the, for the client themselves. So yeah, I love design. I love actually I've been dabbling more in graphic design lately for one of my side projects, um, into kind of more apparel design and uh, yeah, I just love designing things. It's, it's, it's just a really fun thing to do.
0: And you kind of have experience with that too, right? Cause you, I I can't remember that you said you hired it out or you, you drew them, drew a lot of the stuff up for the Rainier, your Rainier watch project, you kind of have like stickers and that type of thing. You, you did some of those yourself, right?
2: Yeah. A lot of the designs for Rainier watch, which is just an online community of, um, folks who love Mount Rainier, which is kind of a iconic mountain here in uh, the Pacific Northwest. That's visible for hundreds of miles on a clear day, which is uh rare <laughs> cause it rains a lot. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so for that kind of side project, I sell a lot of apparel kind of mountain branded apparel, stickers and t-shirts and hats and and a lot of those designs I've done myself, uh, a few of them were a little bit beyond my expertise. And so I would basically draw the design that I really liked. Uh, I felt limited by my ability in Sketch to design that on the computer. And so I sent that off to a designer to help partner with that um, and have them turn my idea into something that's more tangible on the computer.
0: Right. Uh Great. So I think what we'll do now is actually we'll kind of move on to the next segment. I'll pass it off to Mike because we actually have a whole bunch of notes for this one. Mm-hmm. Um We have a whole bunch, a whole bunch to talk about because I think this is going to be sort of the meat and potatoes of what the anyone who's who's new in the industry really wants to hear about. So segment number two, boot camp, Mike, take it away.
1: All right, and right on that boot camp name let's uh let's clear that up so I know we talked like before this and Matt mentioned it uh, you went to a you went to a coding academy called code fellows right so uh there you took some classes and they don't really like the word boot camp I'm pretty sure and they prefer like a coding academy or coding school so do you know why that is what are the differences between the traditional boot camps um, like, yeah why do they do that
2: Yeah, I know. So basically, to kind of step back a little bit and give an introduction for the folks that um, don't know, I I did, like you mentioned, I did kind of attend this coding school called Code Fellows um, because I had learned a little bit, like I was mentioning earlier. I dabbled in code, but I hadn't stepped to the deep end. And so I really wanted to accelerate my learning process and learn a lot more faster. um, And that led itself to more of a boot camp kind of coding school type feeling. Um, and I don't, the distinction between bootcamp and coding school, they, I know they prefer coding school, at least from what I've picked up on. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say. It's probably a pretty razor thin line. I think that they focus a lot more on, uh, kind of what's being used in the modern workplace and kind of what's relevant for students now. And in addition to kind of just teaching us the skills and languages and teaching us Node and JavaScript and um, all, like, the latest JavaScript as well as kind of a modern framework or two and CSS and that sort of thing. They they really wanted us to uh, be in a environment that taught us how to be in a job as well. So we had a lot of projects that simulated the agile work environment, um, had a few projects where we could work on a team collaboratively with other developers because there's you can definitely code on your own. You can definitely learn to code on your own. Everyone's learning style is a little bit different i could I learned the easiest by doing and that's one of the reasons why I decided to go to coding school rather than just teach myself um and so yeah so the the environment they provided was really focused on that collaborative um, learning experience together and that helped to simulate what a person would be going through typically in a coding job um, out in the real world unless they're kind of doing the the solo freelance route um and so they I think they did a really good job of helping us uh, learn what we would be doing in the real world as well as make it highly applicable to the modern trends in the workplace. For instance, the JavaScript framework we learned was React, which Mm -hmm. tends to be, um, I think Stack Overflow would confirm this, but I think it's the most popular JavaScript framework right now. Um, And we learned that on top of a class or two of just core vanilla JavaScript, because that's super important. I wouldn't recommend anyone jump into a framework without being able to really understand the nuts and bolts of what's behind it. Like, you guys, from what I've heard in the episodes, you guys are very strong in that, and that lends itself to very easily switching to the flavor of the week with frameworks. There's, exactly. as you know, there's hundreds of JavaScript ones out there. I think there's even a website that says uh, how many days it's been since a JavaScript framework popped up. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that, but Yeah, I'm
1: assuming it's always zero.
2: <laughs> <It's>, uh, very <laughs> you Don't even low. have to code
1: anything; just leave zero there. <laughs>
2: yeah, I don't think the number goes up very high.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> oh,
2: excuse me. Um, so yeah, I, I think that kind of answered your question.
1: Yeah, no, I think I, I think that makes sense. But uh, I think like, um, how long was it? How long was the Code Fellows?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, it so it was actually twenty weeks of classes. Uh, I entered at the 200 level and finished at the 400 level, which there's a 100 level as well, but I was kind of tested out of that. Um, So from 200, there's a 200 class, a 300 class, and a 400 class. Mm -hmm. Um, And the whole course itself from 200 to 400 is about 20 weeks with um, some breaks in there between classes, which was Mm -hmm. good because that, that experience, I blogged about it a little bit on my Medium account, but that experience was... Um, essentially like drinking from a fire hose. It was (laughs) probably the most mentally challenging thing I've ever done. And I, I mean, I've always been fairly dedicated to studious activities. Like I graduated from college in three and a half years while working part time with a a bachelor's in economics and a minor in Spanish. Um, And it, that just everything condensed Learning how to code, learning how to struggle through whiteboarding and data structures and algorithms um, and a lot of that stuff in 20 weeks was quite intense. And I, I don't think I was prepared for how hard it was and how mentally taxing it would be because we were spending – I was spending probably sometimes 10, 12-hour days at school. Coming home, drinking Soylent, wow. and going to sleep.
1: Oh my Soylent God! Soylent kept me alive. Oh. <laughs> that sounds yeah, that sounds pretty intense. Uh, I yeah. Mean, yeah, I guess I guess that is simulating some high-stress work environments, which Gosh, could be yeah. a big plus, right? Yeah, but. and
2: it's it's not really cheap, and I imagine the longer the classes go in terms of length, the more expensive it's going to be, and so. I I mean from Code Fellows perspective I think it's probably going to be it's kind of a difficult uh, cost benefit analysis of do we make this longer than 20 weeks but it's going to cost more and I mean the whole point of it is doing a quick pivot because when you're not when you're doing code fellows for 70 hours a week you're not you're not obviously working a job unless you're like a robot or something um
1: and so Yeah, it's impossible.
2: You're you're paying money for uh, for the classes, you're not having an income. Um, so I think it's definitely more beneficial to have it shorter for those people that can take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was whew, just like thinking back about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was,
1: I Actually, I'm curious, was it like, cause you've been, you've been through the three, through the four year college program. Uh, was it, because people were paying like an considerable amount of money and investing their time, kind of like more focused on getting a job in the end. Did you find it that people weren't as like apprehensive to learning stuff? Uh, was everyone kind of in on it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Or did people like you know still fail out and weren't able to handle it?
2: There was definitely, I would say, kind of the the dropout rate was. Excuse me. Um, most of my classes were around. 20 people and we lost probably one to three. Um, So maybe like a 10 to 20% um, kind of dropout rate. And uh, it, what was cool, I think, and this was a lot different than university. What was really cool is I think everyone kind of had this collaborative come together experience and really band together and beat the code sort of thing. Um, You're all new to it. You're all learning no one really knows what they're doing besides a few people that were coding in a different language before that and decided to do a boot camp to kind of pivot into JavaScript and web development. But for the most part, everyone was had this collective kind of spirit together of like, hey, let's let's all stay late. Let's get this together. Let's take this on. Um, I feel like there's kind of a word for that, but I I can't. It's not coming to my tip of my tongue, mm-hmm. but it was that was cool. And I think that was a lot different than university where things are a lot more slower paced for the most part. And, um, seemed almost, it was more serious cause it was mm-hmm. definitely like a, we need to learn this so we can get a job when we graduate
1: because that's, that's like serious business. Um, exactly. And, like if you're investing your time yeah. and your money like that, right? Like you think yeah. that people would be very invested in it. and That makes
2: exactly. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely were. there was, that was what was, I thought really cool was just how focused everyone was on like, we need to learn this stuff and let's, let's get a job. And I still have some, I still am in touch with some people from code school and from code fellows. And it, it just, you bond a lot with those people, which was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Cause I mean, you're spending so much time together.
1: 70 hours a week. Damn. Yeah. For Sometimes,
2: for sure. not always. I, I don't want to oversell it mm-hmm. in that regard, but it was, it was intense. Yeah.
1: yeah. So that leads, I guess, to my next question, which would be, would you recommend the Coding Academy route or a bootcamp route for developers starting Man. in the industry?
2: Yeah, that's a tough question.
1: Yeah, And I want to be honest with people different.
2: because, mm-hmm. yeah, and I know, like, I remember listening to podcasts about this exact thing when I was at Codefellows on my commute and before Codefellows and after Codefellows and, and that sort of thing. And it is a hard question. And Everyone's different. I think if you would have asked me a month ago, before I got my job two months ago, I would have said, and that, well, we could probably talk about it, but I was very discouraged at that point, um, five months, six months into a job search, and I would have said no. Uh, right now, grass is always greener kind of thing. I have a job as a developer. I absolutely love it. It's just phenomenal, and I would say probably the one, the one tricky thing is here that, I mean, I'm in Seattle, which is basically... More or less similar to SF where it's mm-hmm. highly attractive for tech companies, Amazon's here, Microsoft's here, ton of startups are here. We, I've heard it's the hardest market in the country, in the US, um, USA to get a job as a developer, especially as a new developer, because I didn't have like a, a formal developer job, front end developer job or full stack job. I, I, technically was self-employed. I was doing websites on the side for um, clients and um, taking that freelance route uh, while I was searching for jobs, but it was an extremely competitive job market here in Seattle. I've heard that it's a lot different from a Codefellow grad or two that's gone to different cities. They said it was a totally different environment to get a job, and I've heard that from countless other people, including people that have talked to UW graduates, University of Washington, which is one of the top CS. Um, programs in the country, from what I've heard, and they they struggle to get jobs here. So I think my experience and how hard it was to get a job is marred by the fact that I'm in such a tech hub where people are jumping around from Google to Microsoft, and mm-hmm. they've got those years of experience, and it's really easy for a company to go, well, I'm going to hire this guy who's kind of a mid-level, mid-level dev over this David guy who doesn't really have a lot of experience, and it's not going to cost me that much more, and I think it's going to be more worth it. It's hard for me to justify picking up this new guy. Um so I, to answer the to answer the question, uh more than likely if a coding school fits your learning style and it fits your uh life where you can say, hey uh family and friends, I'm gonna be <laughs> unavailable, literally on a, so I read about this before I did the boot camp. I didn't believe it. But you should literally tell your friends and family I'm going to be basically unavailable for the next, whatever, four months or five months or whatever it is. And even if I go to your hangout on the weekend, which I did a few times, my brain's going to be completely fried. <laughs> and don't try and ask me anything harder than simple mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and that and that's just kind of how it is. You have to focus on what you're doing. You focus on that career pivot and that change from whatever your prior career was into this coding kind of world, this web dev world, a job as a developer. And it's not easy. Like development is not easy. You guys know this. Like coding right. is it's hard stuff. Um and so overall, to answer the question again, I guess yeah. I would say
1: uh yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it depends. As as per as every question is answered. <laughs> or usual in depends. a podcast format. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know yeah. for sure. But yeah, I think that's that's key for people to know I like just how hard it is, like, because I, I actually didn't know how hard it was, it was until you brought it up right now. I, I didn't realize it was that intensive. Um, but yeah, that's that. I mean, that makes sense. Like, it's they gotta simulate the environment. They have to get you. Like, you said twenty weeks, right? You have to learn mm-hmm. in twenty weeks what most people take, you know, four years to kind of yeah. get in, get yeah. up and running on. So yeah, I mean. It makes sense, and I, I mean, congrats, congrats on actually doing it and then following through and going through that six-month grind to find a job because I know how, like, mentally draining that, that process can be mm-hmm. as well. So that's yeah, awesome. Yeah,
2: that – it was – so I say that the boot camp, um, the 20 weeks at Codefellas was the mentally hardest thing I think I've done. Um, the six months following that of finding a job was the most – emotionally draining thing i've probably done so (laughs) i've had a great year (laughs) no (laughs) um totally worth it but yeah it's because you question yourself right you you recently picked up this new skill set you're learning how to code you're um, realizing that you know like one percent of what's out there for the web dev world and you you question yourself a lot i question myself a lot i was hey am i actually gonna find a job in this do i go back to what i was doing prior is is this really what's right for me? Like, did I make a huge mistake? Mm-hmm. Do I? Am I just never going to get a job in coding? And all those questions are going through my mind. And um, I, and I can kind of talk more here about this, but um, my job search and kind of give tips to people that are out there.
1: Yeah, we'll, it, we'll get into that a little bit that? more in the, okay. in the next one. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So it. Yeah,
2: I can't actually remember what the question was, but. Yeah, it was.
1: <laughs> It was the question you already answered. I just, okay. I just that yeah, it was a follow up. But yeah, so let's get into the next question. Actually, so um, so the connections that you make during this time, you said you bonded with the people, right? So mm-hmm. would you say that those connections have been beneficial so far for you? Uh, is it worth it just for that? Pretty much.
2: Yeah, I'd say. And one tip I heard was basically try and go to a meetup every night uh, when you're job searching. I. I'm recently married. I love my wife and I want to spend more time with her. So that was not something I really wanted to do. Um, and so connections, yeah, connections are great. Uh, I think that that was something that we used a lot of. We stayed in touch and probably should have done more of, if I'm honest. Um, just really, those connections you make with other people, the people that they know. I actually love LinkedIn. I feel like LinkedIn played a big part in the job I got now. Um, just networking with everyone. For me, LinkedIn excuse me, uh, feels like low hanging fruit. Um, and connections are a massive. I basically tried to meet anyone that I had any sort of loose connection with that was at a company that I wanted to work at and grab tea and say, Hey, i w I'd love to grab coffee. I'd love to hear about your experience and see what it's like to work at Textio or work at Indigo slate, uh, where I'm at now or work at, um, helpful human or any of these companies that are super awesome that I applied to. And, uh, that so I think connections are are massive, um, mm-hmm. and yeah I think those connections were were pretty important and beneficial to me in the Code Fellows journey and post Code Fellows.
1: Yeah, this is why like I'm I'm always surprised when people were, were prefer the online route. Like I understand everyone's a different kind of learner, but because mm-hmm. um, your yours was in person. That's another thing I, I didn't I wanted to mention right. That it was yeah, in person. Definitely. Yeah, definitely that, in person. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, that, that in person gives you a lot, like that face to face connection. Because, yeah, you can make some connections online where you kind of email back and forth or you're in a chat room, but it's never going to be the same mm-hmm. as that, you know, face to face contact, you burying your head in the books with mm-hmm. another person. Uh, yeah, like that's, definitely. that's really key in any sort of like learning environment. And I, I'm kind of disappointed in our education system because it's going towards the online route. Yeah, uh, And it's trying to push that really, really hard right now, because obviously it's beneficial for the universities as well, because mm-hmm. they can offer their program to, lo- to a lot more people. But like it's going to mm-hmm. in the end, it's going to be worse for the students. So, yeah. Yeah. And
2: um, yeah, and I think what's cool is what you can easily forget about is uh, you're cultivating relationships, not just for now, not for the next year, but really, this is a new career for you and for me. And so these people that I've had school with, hopefully I can see them in a couple of years at a different company. Like if I go to Google or something like that and say, Oh, Hey, um, remember how we were in Codefellows a couple of years ago and we bonded. Hey, Marco, let's, let's get coffee together. I see you work at this super cool company. Let's chat. And so I think that's, it's really easy to focus on the now, like, Hey, I need a job now, but it's, it's also, uh, even more important to basically foster those relationships for down the road as a developer and, it's people helping people and it's just great to know people that work at other companies. And I think that's, what's really cool about going to code fellows or in-person coding school, because you have those relationships and those are going to be people that you'll see in your sphere of the world for years to come. Yeah.
1: I think that's a very big key. And I I wanted to also mention something you brought up with the, uh, just questioning yourself and being like, Mm -hmm. do I really know my thing? I know only (laughs) 1% of the whole industry. Uh, and, and like, I feel like Everyone goes through that and they go through (laughs) that continuously. So I have Mm -hmm. these like peaks of when I'm like, oh, I'm pretty confident in my skills. And then Mm -hmm. I see something online where I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know how this (laughs) person did that. And like, I'll go back down to being like questioning myself and being how, you know, am I really a part of this industry or not? And Mm -hmm. I think that's something we, everyone has to get through, especially junior developers. But I, am almost positive that senior developers also feel that, feel that way. So definitely you're, you're not alone Mm -hmm. in that it's yeah. good <laughs> yeah. cool yeah so uh on to the next question then so um what you mentioned that you guys learned react and node right is there anything mm-hmm. else that uh, the code the code academy covered
2: yeah so we um so so technically step back a tiny step uh mm-hmm. 401 was the finishing class we had you can actually take different 401 classes whether it's net uh um python or javascript and so i i finished up my route in javascript because i love um javascript and so specifically yeah i finished up that last class and that last class was uh focused on react and the the stack that we learned was technically uh mern so mongo express react and node
1: nice and yeah
2: so that's we touched on jquery in there um But the front-end JavaScript framework that we touched that we definitely learned the most of was React uh, with some Redux, which is like a React um, kind of library tool. And I feel like there's all sorts of like little auxiliary things that we we learned, but that's
1: the main stack was MERN. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's a pretty popular stack now. Uh, Did you guys Mm -hmm. do any sort of PHP or that was completely left out?
2: PHP was completely left out. Okay. (laughs) And That's I can hear my brother shouting in the background because he loves PHP.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean like the, the, like we had an episode of, like a little while back where we talked about um how PHP is still like the major force in the industry, but like the newer mm-hmm. companies, maybe smaller startups, are more into looking at the Mern kind of stack, the mm-hmm. the stack that you learned. But like if you go in and you try to like go work for an older company, you'll see that like you know, ninety percent of their code base is still in PHP and it's still yeah. pretty viable. But yeah, uh, definitely. Mm -hmm. that's i mean you're not into back end anyway so you don't have to worry about it don't worry (laughs) just focus focus (laughs) on the front end javascript stuff no big deal Mm -hmm. um so okay so other than that uh just one last question on this uh, on the boot camp or code academy topic uh can you give us an example a a couple example of the projects you guys did during your uh, coding academy
2: yeah definitely um for the 200 class, where we just focused on HTML, CSS, and some kind of vanilla JavaScript, we finished up that class. So each class had a capstone project sort of attached to it uh, to kind of sum up your learning. And so uh, we each project was about four days of working on it, then one day to deploy and present. And so the first project that we did was it was a really fun one. It was called Ghost Town. Um, and it's still live, and there's autoplay sound in it, so I'm afraid if I go to it in my tab that the sound's going <laughs> to be picked up by the microphone. Um, but Ghost Town Game it was a really fun game with a lot of animations and fun keyframe kind of CSS stuff that uh, floated around the background. It was a text-based adventure game, so you wrote a lot of the game logic for it and it basically follows a ghosty a little person that goes through this adventure and battles different bosses and um gets a different a score at the end of the game uh Mm -hmm. so that was uh, i've got a cough (laughs) oh excuse me fighting off a cold um that was one project that we built and then the last other project that i really liked uh that i'll mention just for the sake of time was our 401 project it was uh (laughs) we bit off more than we could chew for this one. We decided to tackle machine learning. And so we built a project that, um, had a neural net running client side and <laughs> oh, wow. a user would pick a wave file and it would analyze the wave file, like the actual, like an audio file it, mm-hmm. in a wave format. So it has these waves to it to how the sound comes out. It's hard to kind of convey that without visuals, but uh, the user would pick a different wave file and then send it into the neural net, so it would train the neural net based on this wave file and then you could keep training the neural net and the neural net would output a new wave file that's longer that would sound similar to the original part of the wave file because it basically took the wave file, analyzed it for patterns, and then spit out a new file based on those patterns that extended the clip oh. um, and it was It was a really fun project learned a ton learned also what we can't do in four
1: days <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> uh, machine we, learning is a tough one.
2: Oh gosh yeah we dialed back quite a bit on that but yeah. i i basically that was a full stack app which was really fun and i spearheaded the branding and the design and the front end work for that one didn't to be honest didn't really touch a lot of the back end stuff because i knew i was solely focused on front end stuff and that's where i wanted a job and i'm glad i focused on that because um i'm a front end dev now <laughs> not a back end
1: yeah that makes sense that's awesome. It's good. It's good that you knew right away to like, or pr- pretty much right away. Right. Like as soon as you got mm-hmm. into like the backend stuff, you're like, Nope, not for me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take a pass on this one. I'll get back to my, uh, <laughs> CSS. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: yeah. So that that's it for the, the bootcamp section. Uh, Matt, do you have any comments? Do you want to add any like, you know, smaller questions or anything?
0: I was going to say, uh, I was going to almost interrupt, uh, with that neural network thing. I was going to ask what the heck you guys were trying to do. <laughs> but i was gonna say like i wouldn't even attempt that if someone says neural network i'm like uh i'm not gonna do that actually i'm just gonna yeah <laughs> let's just let's let's get like a let's get like a bar graph and let's like find the line of best fit like I, I'll, I'll do i'll do that let's, no you got you know, four days get this neural network code yeah. let's go you can't even get a line of best fit out of a bar graph i don't i don't think I've, I've been a math class for a long time so don't don't quote me on any of my math stuff but yeah i mean
1: like yeah what yeah. One of my friends uh did a machine learning AI application for his capstone for university, and Jeez. to train his data set he didn't realize you know the intensity of how to train <laughs> data sets. It took uh six weeks to train like for one run of his data set, so he had to buy like seven graphics cards to <laughs> oh my God. just to complete his capstone project because like he couldn't he couldn't finish it in time because the data sets wouldn't train wow, yeah Wow. He wins. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> like, talking about biting off more than you can chew. He definitely uh, spent a few thousand dollars on that one. Well, hopefully, he got to return them. Like, uh, I think he sold. He sold them like as used ones after, and got like most of his money back. So it's not a big deal. But still, <laughs> it's still a lot of hassle. He, he, he like... was pretty stressed. Yeah, like I, I, I've seen some stressed people. He was uh, at the top of the stress pile. uh Oh, <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dang. So uh, yeah, I think uh, let's let's move on to actually talking about your job search and uh, the first month on the job because I think it, it's been a month now, right? Or it's close close it's to that been
2: amount. Just about, I think this week is my fourth week, so my anniversary will be on the tenth. So I'm just uh, just sort of a month.
1: Cool. So it's close enough, but uh, yeah. So let's talk about like you were saying. You were saying your interview process was long, and you had some idea, like some ideas for other people to kind of help them out. So. Um, I think let's just see how, like how many interviews did you end up getting and, uh, how many positions did you apply for? Like it was a, it wasn't a one-to-one I'm assuming how, what's the ratio of getting an interview for the amount of positions you applied for?
2: (laughs) Definitely not one-to-one. Yeah, I was very confident if it was (laughs) one-to-one, um, (laughs) yeah, it was, I, I actually initially was focusing on quality. Um And part of my strategies were basically to network with everyone I know um, and any company that I liked basically go out there and typically message them on LinkedIn and say, Hey, I see that, you know, Billy, uh, do you mind grabbing coffee with me? I'd love to chat. Or, Hey, I'd see that you went to code fellows. I'm a recent code fellows grad. Love to learn about your job at uh, Google. Um, and so that was kind of my strategy just to meet a lot of people and network, um, go to some meetups here and there. And I was really trying to focus on, networking for positions at companies that I saw rather than just kind of apply to everything that I see. And after a couple of months that transitioned into apply to a lot of things that I just see. <laughs> Cause was a kidding. shotgun
1: blast approach. <clears throat> oh, excuse
2: me. Um, yeah. So yeah, I kind of started off more fine grained and then transitioned to wider net. Uh, and so I total amount of interviews or applications. I, keep fastidious notes if that's the right adjective in my trello board and i think 207 was the amount of applications i ended up sending out 69 of those were rejects 15 of those expired as in just never heard back uh i got two offers i had a like half dozen on-site interviews half dozen technical challenges um and I think I have about 90 outstanding applications still.
1: <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Uh,
2: so those are kind of give or take on those numbers, but basically, um, so what is that? Probably, I'd say probably like 10% of interviews based on applications. Not,
1: not a lot. Um, yeah, it's not <laughs> too bad though. I think in industry standard stuff, like if you mm-hmm. get 10% interviews on applications. Hmm. I think that's nice. decent. I mean then yeah. getting like an offer obviously is a, wholly, a totally different thing but
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's in the process for those people that are haven't gone through it yet. Essentially, a lot of these companies will do a phone screening to make sure <laughs> you have a pulse and just kind of check in on you. Then a lot of times you'll have a phone interview with um that first one's with the recruiter, the second one is probably more with a dev manager or something like that, phone interview. Mm-hmm. Third step is Uh, you have a take home coding challenge that they give you that can any, take anywhere from, uh, a day to, um, uh, one took me a week, (laughs) probably shouldn't have. And then you typically have an in-person interview uh, on site, one or two of those. And then you finally get an offer and then you go
1: from there. Um, cool. How, what are those in-person interviews? Like how technical are they?
2: It kind of depends on the company. It, mm-hmm. I we did so I, what Codefellows had done really well, and I hadn't mentioned this before, but we focused a lot on data algorithm and structures and all those really fun things like heaps and link lists and uh, all the things I can't remember now
1: because I don't need them on my job. <laughs> yep, yeah, immediately forget right after school <laughs> and interview process. Yep. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. So there was a few positions that asked for things like that. Um Some of the in-persons were. Like, half behavioral, half, half technical, I'd say. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how that in-person process was. Okay.
1: And was it, like, technical as in, like, what's a heap? Or was it technical as in, like, uh, write this code and on this piece of paper? And
2: Yeah, it was technical as in more solve this thing using this thing on this whiteboard.
1: Okay. Fair enough. Well, that's pretty high-pressure stuff, but... Did, did you find that you had the skills for, for doing that when when you were going in or uh, was it kind of like just ad lib?
2: It was hard. I definitely wouldn't say I was in the top percentile of people who are good at those whiteboarding challenges mm-hmm. in code fellows. Like I actually, our final was a whiteboard interview and it, it took me two attempts to pass it because mm-hmm. my strength is in design and, um, front end stuff and not necessarily in kind of the programming logic and, Solving those, uh, so those were those were hard for me. I'll yeah. be honest there.
1: Well, yeah, no, they're hard. I think they're hard for a lot of people. Like most people, or find that really stressful and uh, yeah, and just it. I don't know if I want to say needless from the coding interview side because, like, when are you ever going to be in that situation where you are going to have to uh, write like an algorithm on a whiteboard to solve mm-hmm. a problem? Um, like, have like have in, in your technical career, have you ever had a situation where you had to do something like that?
2: Uh, in the three weeks, I've been a yeah. In the developer. three weeks, I've been a UI developer. <laughs> no, well, I mean,
1: you, you've done you've done uh, freelance work for a couple of years now. So,
2: yeah, uh, and no, but I think that it's it would be too dismissive to say that the algorithm stuff is not applicable to coding at all. I think there's definitely yeah. use cases for it, and it
1: it definitely I'm not, I'm not saying... Yeah, I'm not sorry. I'm not saying algorithms are not important. I, I'm oh. saying like to test someone. To write an al- like to solve an algorithm oh, and solve a yeah. problem on a whiteboard, I think that that is a little excessive. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm assuming they don't like base you know the the final decision on the person based on that. Uh, at least some companies probably don't because they know they just they're just testing you like different kinds of tests. But uh, I I think it's just like a lot of people will crush under that stress but still be great developers.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's the most accurate way of telling if a person's going to be a good developer or not. I'd exactly. agree kind of what you're getting at
1: yeah Uh, okay so let's move on uh so you already talked about the interview process and how that plays out so we'll move on to the next question here which is uh how was your first week at the job
2: it was i i feel very fortunate um my first week was uh easier than (laughs) other people from what i've heard talking to other people um i actually we're an agency so we really can be super busy if you have a, a full-time project for a client or not so busy if you're between things. And so I was lucky enough to not have a full-time project dumped on me right away. Awesome. And so I'd, I'd say first week was besides um, <laughs> besides fighting with Windows because we're a Windows <laughs> shop, I oh, no. only developed in a Mac environment. And so that was takes a lot of getting used to. I've used Windows before professionally for jobs in the past, but... Mm-hmm. It's a whole different ball game, I think, when you're used to coding in a certain environment and have it to get used to a different one. And we uh, weren't able to use uh, Linux, just the Linux subsystem. Mm-hmm. So, but otherwise, first week was great. Like I, I just, I love my company. <laughs> it's that's a great awesome. place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it took you pretty much a week to get to get used to a Windows subsystem, like a the Windows system in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's understandable. It took me about a week to get used to the Mac system when I had to start coding <laughs> on a Mac. So.
2: Yeah, I'm I mean, it's... definitely not totally used to it now. It's still a bit <laughs> of a challenge. I still haven't got my Bash aliases to work, <laughs>
1: but yeah, yeah, that's understandable. Uh, so yeah, so first weeks so that sounds pretty cool. Um, and let's let's get into the next one. I get you've only been there for three weeks, but uh, have you started applying the skills that you're learned in schooling, like in your uh, coding academy, to the work that you're doing on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, it's. Yeah, like, a lot of what we learned is applicable um and important. I mean, I wouldn't know how to code with that very well at all without CodeFellows, and so I'd say that pretty much all the courses were helpful in and, and where I'm at now, and I'm, I'm learning from people all around me, and I think the most important thing that someone can learn from a coding school like that is just how to think like a coder and think programmatically and know how to learn, and I think that's what's really important.
1: Yeah, that makes, yeah, exactly. Know how to learn. I, I feel like that's all of schooling. Like, I, I, yeah. a lot of people yeah. complain about, like, uh, oh, I have a bad teacher and stuff like that. But I'm like, well, you know what? That's real life. Like, you're going to have a bad boss. <laughs> like, you got to, you got to learn how to deal with that kind of stuff. And, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I complained <laughs> about it at first, too. But then you kind of like have this realization as you're going through it that, uh, especially if you work, at the same time as you're going to school and you deal with these people and you're like, wow, this is really like relatable. Like I have a bad teacher. Now I know mm-hmm. how to deal with like them and I have deal with like a bad boss. Like it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, definitely relatable kind of stuff and in, in school. So yeah, it's an interesting perspective on on your end on uh, like you can direct, like for you, you can directly apply this, the knowledge that you learned, uh, I guess, six months ago right to your job, which is cool.
2: Mm-hmm Mm -hmm. yeah it's fun it's it just (laughs) feels unreal kind of in a certain way that's
1: awesome (laughs) um and then so how how challenging has it been like it's fun but i'm sure it's kind of like it's it's still pretty difficult or has it been kind of like an easy go an easy ramp up for you
2: it's been an easier ramp up um and it's it's still a challenge like it's still there's some hard stuff i was trying to troubleshoot and dive into some docs today for a certain thing that um, we we're trying to fix, and that's that's still hard. Um, I'd I'd say once I get hit with a full time project, my full time project right now is on hold. Once I get hit with a full time project, things are going to change quite a bit, and it's going to be a lot more intense. <laughs> As I've seen from other people, they're kind of full in the deep end of a deadline. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's tricky stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah i know i mean it's only it's it's probably gonna get trickier and easier as you get along as you go along yeah definitely Mm -hmm. wish you the best there Uh, i'm glad i'm glad that we caught you in like a little bit of a lull too because i'm assuming if you got hit by a full-time project you probably wouldn't have time to do this podcast so (laughs) thank Mm -hmm. you to your job for not giving you that yet um Mm -hmm. (laughs) but hopefully you you get it soon Mm -hmm. uh yeah, so I mean I mean like you with your limited experience I don't want to go too too deep into your uh into your job yet. So Matt, do you have any any other questions that you want to ask about uh the interview process or the job?
0: Yeah, so specifically kind of one of the things that I thought was interesting when you guys were talking was the whiteboard interviews. So mm-hmm. I was just curious um like I mean coming from I've done like a bunch of IT interview a bunch of IT interviews. And it's not so much like a whiteboard interview in that you have to like write something out, but it's. But I've had a few employers be like, "Okay, we have this type of problem, or we have this type of objective with our server system, computer system, net- network, whatever, whatever the job is related to. Give me, give me a high level of like what you would do. Would you put global policy objects here? Would you, would you, what type of like, printers would you do? Would you have a print server?" et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just kind of curious there is like, are you, when you do those interviews, is it more, and I assume it would be, is it more high level or like, are you writing pseudo code or are you actually writing like, they come to you and be like, okay, write this in react on this board with this marker. <laughs> like, how does that, like, how, I, like I'm more curious, that's like what, what's the intricacies of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good
2: question. Um, generally, what it looks like is they give you a problem of, Hey, solve this specific. So, write a um, write an algorithm that does this, this, and this using whatever language you want. Typically, they don't care what language you use or what tool you use. And so, generally, what you do is you kind of talk through the problem with them, talk about any edge cases, uh, and then go to pseudocode, pseudocode it out, and then go to actual code. Just in probably vanilla JavaScript is what I typically use, um, and then that's. Kind of what it looks like. It is kind of uh, it's more exact than just high level overview kind of chatter about it. It's mm-hmm. uh, generally like solve this specific situation and um, write it out. Yeah.
0: Interesting. I'm just I'm just surprised that they make it like i now I can kind of like like in, I was thinking when you guys said it's high pressure. I was like, well, the problem solving is probably high pressure, and I just kind of assumed that it wouldn't be so exact. But the fact that it's exact, kind of it's a good point I think that Mike made where like a lot of people are going to crack under pressure there because some guys need to like think it through and then they need to like sit there for a couple minutes it looks like they're doing nothing but really they're just working through the problem in their head and then they then they go and like I mean I I could see myself forgetting basic syntax like starting to like panic while I was like trying to like write this out exactly whereas like pseudocode is a little more acceptable but even then if you don't get the if you don't get like the basics of the of like the problem then I can see it being a serious problem.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we were told is that like, don't worry about actual syntax. If you miss a div or something like that, it's more that they're testing your problem-solving ability. And the other tricky thing is, and we were we worked through this. Every, we did whiteboarding every day in 400 in the 400 level. Um, mm-hmm. And so, one thing that we had to learn how to do, which was pretty hard, was to talk out loud and explain your process of what you're doing while you're writing it on the whiteboard um because like you're saying Matt like it you're gonna sit there and want to think through it in your head but actually in these interviews what we were taught to do is talk that out and write it out and that is that is a challenge like that's really tricky I'm definitely one that would want to think through it for a couple minutes but it yeah I don't know I guess it doesn't look good from their perspective and I've heard a lot of things where these whiteboarding interviews aren't Great, and they're not the best tell of a good developer, and so a lot of companies are kind of moving away from them. Um, but they're still out there. It's kind of, I guess, more of a traditional CS, I guess, uh, interview process sort of uh, mechanics, but um, it's definitely still a thing.
0: Yeah. The, the the closest thing I can think of, actually, and Mike would Mike might be able to attest to this, is when we were in Mohawk, Mike, the uh, when we worked through PLC, because you know, like PLC is very visual. Very visual coding mm-hmm. almost. Um, so for P- for PLC PLCs are for people who don't know are basically the uh, more or less as a really high level the computers that control uh, heavy equipment. So something like a like a a line like a like a, con- like a like on a conveyor belt like a line in like a factory. So the computer system that would control that whole thing. So when we d- when we did that in when we did that in college, it was very it was very like like you literally visually code on that thing. And that, I don't know why, whenever you guys were talking about whiteboarding, that's the first thing that kind of popped into my mind. So I don't know if that would relate to any of our audience, but just something that I kind of drew a parallel to there. Um, I think we can move on to the next segment, unless you guys have any more comments about that. Um, So segment, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Uh, Segment number three, uh, comparisons of class training versus self-taught. So, uh, so David and I, we uh, worked together on the very first steps of uh, the APEX Uh, which is a project that's sort of like in progress, uh, sort of on hold at the moment. Uh, But we were, uh, but you were at that point, fresh out of the, fresh out of the code Academy, fresh out of code fellows. Um, Whereas I'm more or less self self self-taught. So like I like we learned a little bit of web development, but I basically taught myself the front end. Um, So, you know, we got to work in, you know, that was kind of an interesting thing where it's like, you know, two different coding styles and then, or two different like learning styles, I guess. And it's more or less fresh in both of our minds. So, Kind of do some comparisons, maybe. So, what do you think about you know class training versus the self taught mentality? You know, what are the pros and cons that you can kind of see from you know that that time that we worked together, getting getting the uh, the teaser up?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was good. It was good to dive into that right away. Um, and it was one thing I was really looking forward to after I finished Code Fellows was being able to build my own things that I wanted to build, and that was the first thing that I was focused on building and. I've kind of, I feel like I probably fall into the hipster dev kind of camp where there's a lot of cool tools out there and I really like using cool tools. And so I remember for that project, we used Gatsby um, JS, which is built in React to static website builder, as well as Tailwind CSS, which is a really cool utility based framework that's not, it's not really like bootcamp or anything like that. It's not a UI kit, but it's very low level and allows you to customize and build your own. Um, components quickly and so using those things were uh was pretty fun but I remember um you were kind of not acquainted with them because you hadn't seen them of course and so kind of um stepping through that process with you was, was fun and in terms of self-learning and like my process you were definitely quick to be able to step in and I remember there were some flexbox issues I didn't Learn Flexbox during Codefellas, uh, and so that was something I was learning out of school on my own, and you were pretty quick to step in there and be able to fix some of the, the issues that were going on there uh, with different flex and the divs and the children and parents inside right, right. Um, the Flexboxes. But, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if I can – I don't know how well I can answer that question, besides it was it was kind of just interesting to see the difference, and I don't know if I really noticed that much of a difference.
0: I, I think I think it's, like, I guess it would come down to how how the person self-taught. Like, if they were, like, they, like, claimed they were self-teaching, but they were, like, reading a single article a day of, like, a textbook or something. And then they just, like, never really put it in practice. I guess, like, because it, it really depends on the quality, right? It's, like, code camps, if we assume they're all similar and they're all good... Um, or code academies in your case, you know, if we assume they're all good and they're all balanced and they all like teach the people the right way. Well, somebody who's self-teaching could self-teach poorly. I'm not saying I'm an expert in self-teaching, but, um, I, I can see what you mean. Cause it's like, cause I was totally lost. Like you're like, Oh, fire this up. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like I was just going to, I was just going to open up like a text file. And start like go like in Notepad plus plus, and I was just gonna start running, like start like writing. And you're like, oh, I have this like server set up, and I have all these like tools, and we have to compile it before we put it up. And I was like, okay, here we go. Like you know, <laughs> so uh, definitely like compliments there, which which is good, I think, right? Like it's 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 like different people in a workplace, like on a team.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely pros and cons to each. I don't know if I like fully remember every detail about that time or. Can fully speak to the pros and cons of each, but I think they're both viable skill sets, and I think that like you're really strong in the fundamentals, which is huge. And I think that a lot of times in this modern world where people are going to boot camps and schools to kind of pick up coding really fast, I think there can be a too big of focus on learning React without learning uh, like JavaScript, vanilla JavaScript. And so I think that it's very important to to walk before you can run.
0: I, I would say that's that's like most definitely because like I mean slightly off topic, but we're jumping into Vue.js now as we've discussed on the show a few times, and it's it's like I I, I could see if somebody was you know really new, and they decided oh, I'm gonna self teach myself I'm gonna self teach myself this uh, this like Vue.js JS, they might think that JavaScript is just all component based, you know what I mean? Like they they could have that disconnect, and then they could go to like something else, another framework of some kind, whatever there are, because there's so many as we already said. And they could be totally lost, whereas I tried to, like, at least get the fundamentals. But, which is a good point, actually, semi, semi, like, not to a fault, but, like, it's, like, you you having all that stuff set up, it kind of, like, kicked me, k- kicked me in the ass a bit. And, like, I started learning Vue.js, and, like, I was starting, I started using, I mean, you don't use Bootstrap, from what I remember, but I started using Bootstrap more, because I was like, oh, I really should probably verse myself in these tools, because if we get pulled in on a project where I have to work with somebody you know, they're going to be using all this stuff and I can't be like, yo, how do I turn this on? Like all the time. So it's, it's something that like, you know, it kind of was like, okay, I have this good fundamentals, but like, it's good that you had the, uh, like the modern, I guess, like the modern approach there. So it's like, it's like a, cause like for me, it's like, I'm not, I I keep, I just kept honing my fundamental skills. I wasn't like advancing and and not not because I didn't want to. It's just it's not something I don't look up every single day. What should I be advancing on? I just kind of go like, oh, I'm weak with classes. I'll do this. Or I'm weak with, I don't know, uh, like like uh, I'm weak with nav bars. I'll work on that. You know what I mean? So it's like you're furthering yourself, but not. I wasn't like jumping ship to like learn a new thing. So I I would say that that's like a that's one pro of kind of having a team of two types of people kind of thing. Um, for the next question, actually, so how much have you had to uh, self-teach yourself after working on projects outside of your schooling? So I think you've already mentioned uh, in the show and you mentioned during the time we were working on the apex, you know, Flexbox was something that you had to learn through. So like how many, how much did you have to self-teach yourself after leaving code fellows?
2: Yeah, there was, um, there's a decent amount. I'd say like code fellows, they know they can't cover everything. They know there's going to be things you're going to learn on your own. Um, And that's, they didn't actually do a lot of CSS stuff because that's something that they felt like most people could pick up on their own a lot easier than you could pick up Redux and react on your own. Um, And so I think that was a great way to do it. I think that people were able to go out and learn more CSS stuff on their own. And CSS is really about slamming your head against the wall until it works. Um, And I like CSS (laughs) and I know that's how it goes. Um, And so yeah, Flexbox would be a good example, CSS grid, kind of more the modern um, type front end things I picked up and started to learn, like Gatsby would be one tailwind and kind of how to use a lot of these modern toolkit, uh, tools, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, so there was, I'm trying to think of, um, there's a better example. I'd say like flexbox, amazing. That does wonders for CSS. <laughs> if you think of how many people try and center a freaking yeah. paragraph tag on a page, before oh yeah. Flexbox and how there's gifs about the, uh, joking about that. Um, that it would probably be my favorite example just because of how amazing it is. And I, I did some West Boss courses on that and CSS grid to kind of pick them up and practice them, practice, 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 of course. So I'd say that's probably the best example. The other tiny tidbit I would say along the lines of that is to people that finish a code school, don't stop coding. Uh, you will lose it very quickly. And so it's important to practice, and that's in addition to like learning a lot of the new things that are out there. I was very focused on practicing because that's important. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that that's a really good point, actually, because like you like you said, you're about six months into the job search. Like I, I mean, I mean, you, you'd be able to attest to this, but like I would wonder how much you would lose while like if you were just focusing on applying and you weren't doing things like the apex or whatever other projects you were working on, like the little side projects, uh, freelance, it, it, you know, I wonder how much, how much you would have lost and had to, you know, relearn or reacquaint yourself with over just those six months. You know, I, I honestly felt like I was a better developer at the end of code
2: fellows. Then, uh, like a month before I got my job, because you're doing so much cover letters, resume, applying, networking, that sort of thing. You can't be coding for 10 hours a day. Um, and it's, it's just, that's how it goes. You can't do both, but you definitely need to do some of both. Um, but, yeah, you can't do both full-time. And that was one of those questions, Mark, because I had in my head, like, I suck at coding now kind of thing. Like, how much have I forgotten? That's a, that's a big concern. It's a big challenge.
0: And I think it's important to say, too, like what you're saying, because I, I bet you there's a lot of people that are – you know possibly entering this entering the job search now or you know they're in something like a coding school boot camp whatever and and like they're gonna feel the same way so it's kind of important to say you know like a lot of guys will try to like uh, gussy it up and they'll not say like oh i had this like downtime it's important to say like hey you know i kind of felt like i wasn't gonna be a good developer and then ended up landing a job which is like the ultimate confidence booster right so um, so just definitely something to keep in mind for any, uh, developers that are on the job search right now, or will be entering that. That's a, that's a really good point you made there, uh, for sure. Alrighty. So I think what we'll do is we'll actually move on to our last and recurring segment, web news, phone cameras versus DSLRs. So I'll kind of go through the talking points as a couple of questions within the talking points, and then we'll just kind of have a conversation, a back and forth of our different opinions and uh, views on this topic. So... Phone cameras are improving year over year, and they are producing some amazing results, rivaling those of professional-grade equipment like DSLRs. So one question is, are DSLRs going to be priced or generally forced out of the market due to these improvements? Uh, Phone cameras are also always on us, whereas DSLRs kind of like require that we take them with us separately, so they're usually in a separate bag. And then there's oftentimes more equipment, so there's like lenses and batteries, and then of course that bag is usually like a big typically expensive camera bag so we have that bulk versus portability so another question then what can you do with a dslr that you can't do with a phone and vice versa and then more of a web-based question which we might top, uh, might touch on at the end of the conversation is do you use your own photos for your web projects or do you use a source for example a stock photo resource so let's kick that off with that first question there are dslrs going to be priced or generally forced out of the market due to these improvements any thoughts gentlemen
1: yeah, have yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Inevitable, inevitably. Yeah, okay. Uh I'll I'll start, I'll start. Uh yeah. so like re- recently I actually read an article <coughs> and I wanted to bring this up and I didn't beforehand, but I think it said something like uh DSLRs have gone down in like uh sales over the past 5 years or so. Uh, something by like eighty percent, and uh, I'll bring it up a little bit later when, once uh, you guys are in conversation, and I'll confirm. But uh, so I think that answers your question right there, Matt. So like I'm not pro- like promoting one or the other, but I think that it is directly affecting DSLRs uh, just because of the convenience. In my in my opinion, um, like if if I'm gonna go out somewhere, especially if I'm gonna go out like just like on the town or something go to go to toronto or go somewhere in the, like i don't want to be lugging around a massive camera with me even though i have one uh i'd rather just take a phone especially because now the cameras are taking really good pictures
0: right so, i don't know mm-hmm. i think i think I th- oh go ahead we're do- doing it again oh, i knew this was gonna happen yeah <laughs> <laughs> everyone jump in at once <laughs> yeah go ahead sorry um, about that yeah
2: yeah i i don't know if people know i have a background in this world actually so i Uh, I do freelance photography on the side. I've done a a few half dozen weddings this summer, um, have been doing portrait and photojournalism and that sort of thing for close to 10 years. Uh, And I have a DSLR. I also have a cell phone. I also consider myself a mobile photographer. All of my photos on my Instagram are only (laughs) taken with um, phones. And so I definitely have feet in both camp, both camps. I think that the question depends on the perspective. Uh, For the normal consumer... Yeah, DSLRs are a really hard sell for to buy one that's entry level, especially for I don't know, a thousand dollars or a little bit less um when you have all those lenses and equipment and stuff. And I think that I imagine those sales are definitely tanking quite a bit. Uh the other killer factor for DSLRs is mirrorless cameras are super hot right now. Like mm-hmm. so hot that they could be in Zoolander kind of thing. They <sighs> are blowing up. Uh They're Nikon. Still hot. Yeah, blue steel hot. Nikon just released um, their newest ones, the Z7 and six or something like that. Uh, a couple like a month or two ago, Sony has been taking the world by storm with their mirrorless DSLR or mirrorless professional grade cameras. And so, um, yeah, DSLRs on the entry level are definitely being consumed by phones and the point and shoot market's completely gone. I feel like that's basically nothing due to phone cameras being so impressive and mm-hmm. they're phenomenal. Like I, I actually have a lens for my phone, <laughs> uh, um, as well as a few different cases that I can mount, uh, my road mic on and my wide angle lens on my phone and use it kind of as a stabilizer when shooting video. Wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, DSLRs I feel like they're they're near death. Like it's it's kinda sad because every time so I use phone my phone for camera for photography a ton and video and stuff. But every time I pick up my DSLR and look at the photos from it, if you know what you're doing with the DSLR, there's no comparison. Um yeah, it's super nice to have a point and shoot out of the pocket, mm-hmm. super fast, super easy. It's great. Even some of the fake portrait modes pretty good as long as you're not looking at it larger than like an iPad size screen. Um and that's phenomenal. But, uh, DSLR, the control and the depth of field that you can have and the control you can have over that is untouchable for professional grade photography. So it kind of, like I initially said, I guess 10 minutes ago, uh, it depends on the perspective you're taking.
0: What would you, what would you say about then you were talking about like the depth of field and stuff? What would you say? I mean, it's the, it's a very Gen 1, but there was the, what is it, the NES S9 has the variable aperture on its main shooter. Would yeah. You, would you say that, because that was kind of one of the things, right, where, you know, phones phones started getting better, and then phones started yep. getting a manual mode, and like, mm-hmm. as a result of them getting better, but it was like aperture was never there, and aperture <laughs> can be used to, like, manipulate the depth of field. And also, yep. like you know, allow more light in or less light in, or mm-hmm. like what have you, right? So, mm-hmm. and that, so now that phones, I mean, maybe maybe this is the end of the road for variable aperture on a phone. But now that it seems like they could potentially get, um, uh, like a more variable aperture. Like, I mean, I think the Samsung one's only like you know, it's I don't I remember the exact it's, f stop. It's between but two, two, yeah, two, yeah, yeah. There's them. just two of them. Whereas like on a DSLR, especially if you buy like a really high end one, there's like a whole spectrum. Do you think that mm-hmm. maybe we're going to start seeing that on phones and then we'll really start seeing an, over, like an overtaking of even maybe mid-tier DSLRs? No. Um, no. Uh,
2: I think that's a super cool feature on phones to have that variable aperture. And I actually – I had used a Huawei P9 and P10 a couple of years ago, and they, I think, were one of the first to debut uh, – they were using it. They were doing it digitally, a variable aperture, but it was really cool. You could control the depth of field from, I think it was like f point uh, nine, which is really shallow depth of field, up to f twenty two, and that was really fun to be able to play with that on a phone. It doesn't really look that great um, on a larger scale, like more than just browsing Instagram. I don't feel like there's a lot of viability in using an aperture like that on the tiny sensor that's in a phone. So that so the Apertures, there's like, there's like a thousand components that go into a really good photograph, basically from a DSLR. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of little details, like the glass that you have in front of what's capturing the image has to be really good. Some of my lenses cost anywhere from eight hundred to fifteen hundred. Holy and, God! Uh, a good lens that a professional wedding photographer will use will be anywhere from fifteen hundred to three thousand, generally. Um, And so good glass is really expensive. And those lenses uh, don't really go down in value like other things do in life because it's really good glass. It just doesn't degrade and it stays strong over time. And so, like, I'm shooting with a lens uh, for weddings that's 20 years old uh, and it's still pretty much as good as new kind of thing. Um, For the most part, when you have really good glass on your lenses, it's – it's fantastic. Uh, it allows you to capture really good images. The other huge deciding factor that I would say gives DSLR the edge is sensors. Sensors are getting a lot better in phones. That's basically um, kind of like what's capturing the image. I think if I can describe that accurately, but that's you have these little tiny sensors uh, in phones compared to DSLRs, and I feel like if I'm wrong, someone please tell me on Twitter or something like that because I could totally be wrong, but. Uh, From what I understand, uh, these things are very much lacking in phones. And a lot of the really Mm -hmm. cool phone things that are happening in phones, and I love phone photography, HDR is phenomenal. The dynamic range that you're getting basically from the darks to the lights in your phone when you're capturing an image is fantastic. I have the original Pixel, Pixel XL. Oh, yeah. And some of those shots where it's like I'm looking at this landscape where it's really dark on one side and really bright clouds on the other, That's a really hard image to capture for a sensor um, unless you have a really good dynamic range. And phones are getting really good dynamic range and they're doing a lot of kind of little neat tricks to help uh, map out those tones so it's more balanced. But that's something that is never... I feel like in a phone-sized... In phone size, that's going to be a really hard thing to manufacture that's going to match mid-level DSLRs. I think that possibly entry-level DSLRs because that's kind of more... Amateur photographers, those are definitely going to go downhill in terms of sales, mm-hmm. and mirrorless will probably overtake those because mirrorless is at a price point that's way lower than DSLR. Um, but to answer the question about mid-level, I, I feel like granted the sales will go down a little bit as people turn to more to, to phones and, and that sort of thing, but I don't think that it, a phone is ever going to compare to a DSLR mm-hmm. if you're looking at an image that's. Larger than just on Instagram because on an Instagram size screen, like on a phone, it's, it's kind of hard to tell
1: sometimes. It's true. I, I actually have something to input to that. So, uh, there's phones coming out now with like not two cameras on the back, but like four cameras and five cameras on the back. Like they're, they're very niche level right now and very experimental, but I think they're trying to tackle what you're saying is the sensors. So what they're going to be doing is they're going to be taking in five sensors and doing digital processing and putting it into one. I'm just like, I I don't, I don't know if you know anything about it, but like, I'm, I'm thinking maybe that's how they're going to combat it. Put like 20 sensors on the back of a phone, try to make that into like one really good sensor with digital processing. But I, we're probably still far away from that, but I think that's possibly a way to do it because you're right. The size of the sensor will never be able to match the size of a DSLR or even a mirrorless. So, like, how are they going to compete other than, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: I feel like the way for phones in the future is going to be incorporating the mirrorless technology, which gives you a more compact camera than a DSLR, uh, mm. into, like, a, a cell phone sort of thing. And I feel like that's probably going gonna what's, what would overtake the mid-tier DSLR, um, That'd be cool. like, completely vanquish it, basically, would be mm-hmm. something like that.
0: Do you, do you think that there's any uh, any merit in, so there's, uh, well, I mean, this is years ago now, so it's probably been surpassed, but there was the the Windows phone, the Nokia 1020. I don't know if you remember that, but it was, like, sort of, it was, gen, like, I think it, it may have come in a variety of colors, I'm not sure, but it was basically had, like, the big, the big, like, puck on the back, and it was, like, really known for its cameras. I don't know if you know which phone I'm talking about, um, mm-hmm. but it was, like, really known for its camera. Do you really, do you think that, potentially, we're going to see, I think... LG tried it kind of with their modular G5. Do you think that we're possibly going to see um these I guess it would be the actual camera manufacturers bring out like a case that would click into your phone that would give you let's say mirrorless because it's still smaller but then like mm-hmm. you'd be able to like attach a proper lens but use the computing power of the phone. Do you think that that potentially could be where low-end comes in, because uh, mm-hmm. one thing I would see low-end coming in, regardless of whether you're using a phone or not, is if you're like, hey, I wouldn't mind trying out a DSLR, I don't want to jump to $900 or something ridiculous. I'll get a used older one, well, if, or not, not like a used lesser one, like a used beginner mm-hmm. one. But if those are getting priced out of the market and they disappear, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I have to start a mid-tier. And for a beginner, that's a big step. So do you maybe mm-hmm. see something like that happening?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, the whole question mark of will a modular phone actually be sold nowadays, I think, is unfortunately probably not going to happen because of those Moto phones really flopped, from what I understand, in terms of sales. I think it's a really cool concept and really cool mm-hmm. idea. And I do think that that would be a great way to incorporate the mirrorless technology onto a phone. And at that point, you're almost just like taking a mirrorless camera, attaching it onto a phone, and like transferring the file over. Um, it seems like like that's because you'd basically be using everything from the from the mirrorless camera, right? Like you wouldn't even have. That's true.
0: Well, I, I was almost thinking it'd almost of be like, like a replacement. Yeah, like I was almost thinking of you would you would almost I guess I guess you would either um, I was going to say Velcro would, but you'd probably like like magnet your phone to like a chassis because a mm-hmm. lot of the price of. I mean, a lot of the price of photography in terms of DSLRs and mirrorless is obviously the camera body. And then that also, you know, there's the lenses and that whole bit and the sensor. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the computing on board. And I'm curious Mm -hmm. as to whether they could actually say, okay, we'll make it so that it's like a one size fits all slab with like you literally magnet your phone to the back. And on the other side, there's like it's like basically you take you take your mirrorless camera, you cut it right in half, you take like that, the HUD and everything, like the, where all the buttons and everything are, you make all mm-hmm. that in software on your phone screen, and your phone just like literally, ma- like, you know, heavy duty magnets it, like, like those dashboard things, heavy duty mm-hmm. magnets with like a little short cable, so now you basically have all the glass, and the, and the sensor that you were mentioning, but it would interface with an app, and then compute mm-hmm. with the phone's computer.
2: Yeah, that would be cool. Um, and that would be less modular I, phone yeah.
0: than accessory, you know?
2: Yeah. I don't know if... I feel like I can't see any major phone manufacturer trying that, but I think it'd be super cool and I'd be interested in it.
1: So I'm going to link something in the in the call. You guys can check it out. So like like you were mentioning with the uh, Moto phones, they they actually did this with a Moto phone. Um, Whoa. Hasselblad? Yeah. They use a the Hasselblad on the back <laughs> of a Moto phone. Well, uh, but the issue was that they, they can they use the sensor on the phone for the actual like image capturing ooh, that sounds i believe like the opposite. but i believe yeah but i believe they did do it with mirrors um but it didn't work out too well <laughs> the reviews weren't weren't the greatest Dang. Uh, yeah, I, mean, if I had again, known
2: about that i would have been tempted to get a moto z
1: yeah, I mean, it, if, if it worked out really well, I was actually considering it because, like, that, this is the ultimate thing, right? Like, this is this is what we're talking about right now as a concept, and it actually exists. Yeah, this is exactly what I was thinking. I know, I know, and that's why I, I figured I'd bring it up. But unfortunately, um, other than the fact that you get that 10, that, that optical zoom, it's not, uh, yeah, it's 10 times optical zoom, uh, I don't think it, it worked out too well for quality-wise. Yeah.
2: <laughs> there was one other company... A major camera manufacturer like Hasselblad that had sort of a phone mount um, that you could mount a really nice lens, and it's going to drive me crazy because I can't remember who exactly it was, but um, maybe one of the listeners out there can chime in once the episode goes live, but there was someone that released something. Um, Who did that been? Dang. I can't remember, but... Uh, I actually I use Moment. Uh, there's a company called Moment. It's shopmoment.com. I mm-hmm. use their lenses on my phones, and I love them. They're super high quality. They're not cheap. They're like a hundred dollars a lens. Oh wow! Um, and they mount onto your case, but it is like high quality glass. You get a really clear, sharp image, uh, and they're they're cool. They're actually, they're actually
1: a local startup here in Seattle. Um, I- I could see that being pretty awesome with the pixel phones, considering <clears throat> I'm pretty yeah. sure they're I, they're still number one, I believe in camera mobile yep. cameras like i I know the iPhone ten x s is getting some rat like really good reviews for their cameras, but uh, so far, all the reviewers that I've watched are like, yes, this camera's amazing, but the pixel like it's you can't match it
2: so. yeah, the pixel two still is top of the heap from yeah. what I've heard. Yeah, so that's
1: it's definitely is, interesting to see, and it's all pretty much digital processing, right? Because like the sensor they're using isn't yeah. anything outstanding.
2: Yeah, like, I don't go- know exactly what the sensor is, but yeah, you're right. It is pretty much their smart processing.
1: <laughs> like, I wonder how far smart processing can get. Like, I I, I wonder if we can get to that level <coughs> with just smart processing of being that DSLR quality. Like, I know we're not there yet, and we're probably we're still far away from it. Uh, mm-hmm. just based on even my very, very tiny experience with photography. Like today, um, Matt was over actually. And we, there was a hawk that landed in the backyard and mm-hmm. like, I took on my phone and I took a picture, but like, it's not going to get anything. But then I got my like zoom lens and my DSLR, my Canon DSLR. And mm-hmm. I got like some really nice pictures. Like there's no way mm-hmm. a phone could ever do that mm-hmm. at, at this point. Uh, yeah. But like, I, I wonder if like in the future it's possible that eventually digital processing will get there. That's,
2: yeah, it's it's hard
1: to say. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: would that would that d- rely on? I remember. Um, so on my S eight plus, uh, I noticed I noticed a feature in the camera. I don't know if it was added later or whether I just like, noticed it on on a whim. But it like I could actually save RAW on my mm-hmm. like which I didn't think a phone could do. And I think they're DNG files uh, yeah. on a Samsung. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like it, with that digital processing, then. Like how much, is, is a RAW file from a Canon DSLR, let's say, a better RAW file than a DNG? Like is there more information because of the sensor? Or could digital processing fix, well quote unquote fix, the RAW file enough? Or maybe it's like the same level of RAW file across two, and then the image gets produced by the algorithm essentially. That's a That's a good question, I think, maybe. Like, I wonder I how many people would yeah. notice if their wedding was shot on a pixel.
2: There's actually, I feel like there's, I've seen this before, there's photographers out there that are only, will do weddings only on their phones and stuff. Wow. Um, and, like, photography is all about capturing the moment and doing, having really well composition and light is, having really good light is just the most important thing for photography. And so, you can get away for the most part if you do that and you're professional you know what you're doing. Uh, there's definitely, there's something to be said, like an image captured from a DSLR, even if it's raw versus an image from a pixel, even if it's raw, like the DSLR is just going to be a lot more of a refined image. Uh, it's going to have a lot more dynamic range. The depth of field is going to be a lot more cleaner and depth of field is, that's just the huge advantage still for DSLRs. Mm -hmm. Um, and the HDR is, is pretty solid in the pixel. Like it does a really good job of um, smoothing out the kind of the different tones that are in a shot, but uh, the DSLRs are just, there's something to be said when it's just capturing more of it, regardless of the processing power that the pixel has.
0: Uh, what, what exactly do you think dynamic range relies on the most? Is it that sensor, that, that sensor difference between the two, or is it more the lens? Like what is, what's the main factor that would cause a DSLR to have better dynamic range over a smartphone?
2: Um, I'm not super sure on that, but I, I think it has to do with a little bit of everything. I think it has to do with the lens, the sensor itself, um, and kind of the other factors that go into like an image.
0: Okay. Cause I'm just trying to like envision exactly like what, cause like, you know, they're working on every piece clearly with the now variable aperture. So I'm just curious as to what, what they could do, miniaturize it so much. And then have the algorithm fix it. It's, 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 it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Like I, I also kind of wonder whether sometimes you can get a better shot with your DSLR because you're using manual, like physical controls, physical buttons. And so you have feedback on your hands so you can, you know, more quickly, like Mike was saying with the, the Hawk, I mean, you're you gotta go quick. Cause I think my move. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot easier for you to like with one finger zoom in and with the other finger focus. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. on a phone, you're, like, flipping through these menus, and it's clunky, and you're, like, clicking through things, and you're bumping the wrong button, and then you mess up your settings, and then it's, like, a whole mm-hmm. thing that you're doing, which is why it's it's more or less a point-and-shoot for most. So, yeah. I'm wondering whether it's some of that physical control. I mean, I zoom, zoom in yeah.
1: general as well. Like, you can't get that kind of zoom on a phone.
2: Yeah, digital versus optical zoom. And there's some optical zooms on smartphones, but they're not... I have a 200X lens, like, you can't, you can't touch that (laughs) with your phone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's no, you can get, like, a 2X or whatever it is on the iPhone, (laughs) or something, or, like, whatever it is, so. um, Yeah. Well, do you, okay, well, let's, let's go into that other question, then, like, the more web development stuff. So, you, when you do, uh, like, like websites or, like, you know, any sort of web project, would you, would you use your, as a photographer, would you use your own photos, or you find yourself more or less looking for stock photos when you like try to come up with a design?
2: Yeah, it kind of depends. Some of my client projects, I've actually done photography for them combined in addition to making their website for them. And that's been pretty fun and kind of a unique service that I can offer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it kind of depends on the business. Uh, A lot of times, if I don't think I can capture something well and I'm kind of looking for more of a generic feel, I'll use a stock photo resource. And one go-to site that I always use and go-to first is uh, Unsplash. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that's what it's called. But I I, mean, I use
0: that like crazy now. Yeah, I recently too. found it.
2: Yeah, Unsplash is phenomenal. There's also one called Pexels, like dot mm-hmm. com. Okay. Uh, and that's also not quite as many, like, I'd say maybe like 5% of volume that's on Unsplash is on Pexels. Uh, but those are both, like really cool stock photography done by real photographers. And that's what I like more than any other kind of generic stock photo is using those sites. But a lot of times, yeah, I'll use my own, which is, is kind of a fun thing to do for client websites.
0: Especially now when a lot of people they're doing like a, a lot of the really popular designs, especially on Instagram, because a lot of designers will share their stuff. Um, and you'll see a lot of them be almost focused on the picture. It's like the, it's like somebody went to a stock photo resource Um, or they, you know, they had a, a resource of photos, maybe it was their own and they, they got a photo and then they created a design, you know, Mm -hmm. specifically for portfolio work generally, but like, it, Mm -hmm. it it almost seems like it starts with the, with the photo and then they start with, (coughs) okay, let's get the nav in here, but this one, you know, let's not cover up the bike that's in the photo. Like it's, it's really like around the photo. Would you, would you say that you find yourself doing that a lot or do you more or less like build the UI and then you would add the pictures as needed
2: yeah it's a little bit of both um i haven't done it a, a ton so i don't have a lot of like, a lot of history combining the two um but it's a, it's a little bit of both there will be there's one site where it was kind of i knew what i we were designing and trying to go for with the website and so in my mind when i was doing the photography for her i knew what kind of image we wanted to capture like i want to leave a lot of negative space in this corner of it because that's kind of where we're going to put more of the uh, splash text on the hero image. And so, um, that led the the design led that photography. And there's been other examples where it's been kind of more, this is the image I capture. And so we'll kind of craft the, um, like the nav bar around that, so to say, so to speak.
0: Okay, cool. cool. It, Cause I, I, the one thing I was, the one thing I, I'm working on right now is like I downloaded Adobe XD. There's like that free tier, so, mm-hmm. um, I think we mentioned this earlier in the show, not to like get off the topic of photography, but earlier in the show we mentioned like, uh, you know, some customers will just want a wireframe somewhat more, more of a, like a mock-up. So normally our mock-ups in the past used to be like, we would do a wireframe, give it to them. A lot of guys don't care what the colors are and they just move on, especially if they're mm-hmm. small, but we'll, we'll have guys now where they'll want the, the mock-up. So we'll have to literally essentially make the site. To mm. mock it up right now, so I'm getting used to Dang. using like visual. Because again, the, the, we're wearing all the hats, right? Where it's yeah, like where yeah. it's like I don't I don't have a designer on hand. I I <laughs> didn't go to school because because design can be a school of its own. Like a lot of these designers, they don't know how to use CSS, HTML, or JS. You know, yeah. So yeah,
2: they know enough as it is, kind of thing. Like yeah, specialization.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, so like I mean, you know, the front end guys might lean more toward the creatives, but you know, there sometimes isn't a crossover. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's just one of those, it's just one of those things that I've, uh, that I've noticed. Um, what, mm-hmm. how much would you, how much equipment would you say either you guys, cause like you guys are kind of like, like David, you're more professional photographer. Uh, and then like Mike, you, you kind of go out more like a hobby and myself included, I kind of go out with my DSLR on more like a hobby basis. How much equipment would you say you guys bring along with you? D-
1: depends ahead, on Mike. the shoot, right? Depends, yeah. depends on what I, where I'm, when I'm going to shoot um so if i'm going to like uh go hiking and i want to take a specific shot of like uh a couple of trees and like a clearing in in between a couple of trees and i know that's what i want to take then i usually just bring one lens with me uh just cuz if it's a short hike and i don't i don't want to take too much with me but uh if i if i'm going to hike and i know that i'm going to just be taking pictures of everything then i'll take a more variety of lenses max like probably 3
0: so, okay, and, and like what? So the, those lenses are just for different zooms, or do like, yeah, zoom. you have a prime lens or?
1: Yeah, I have just just st- like the the standard. Uh, I think it's fifteen to like fifty five lens. Then I have like a, a sixty five to like two hundred lens, and then uh, I have like a portrait lens.
0: So okay, yeah. What about you, David? Um,
2: it kind of yeah it depends on the activity. I actually. <laughs> I typically leave my DSLR at home nowadays, uh, Mm -hmm. unless it's a paid photo shoot, like a wedding or something like that, or a portrait shoot, or a product shoot that I'm doing for Rainier Watch. That's actually, side note, that's where I've noticed the biggest difference. I tried to do some product photography with my cell phone, using kind of like the fake portrait mode and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing, uh, for product photos for Rainier Watch, for the t-shirts and hats and stuff that we sell, but uh, it just not as good. And so I, I quickly went back to using my DSLR for those things. But with So if I'm going on a hike or a backpack or something like that, if the light's going to be good, I'll bring my DSLR with um, typically like my ultra wide angle and maybe a prime lens or two. Uh, and then for weddings, I bring my telephoto as well as my two primes and my wide angle. And then uh, if I'm just kind of hiking around or, or whatnot and I leave my DSLR at home, I bring my Pixel with my Moment wide angle. I, clearly, I love the wide angle. I love, I'm love. i a big fan of wide angles. Nice.
0: I'm surprised you don't have the, uh, what is it, the, G, the G7? I think the G7 has like a wide angle camera on it. I think that's what its I, secondary camera is.
2: <laughs> I was super tempted by that phone, and I almost <laughs> got it at one point. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah.
1: <laughs> my, my phone actually has the wide angle, too. It's the Asus 5Z, and its secondary Ooh. camera is a wide angle pretty cool it's pretty cool but like the the issue with that wide angle is that usually it's usually a little bit lower quality so even mm-hmm. even i think even on the lg so it's like you need, you really need those ideal lighting conditions to get a really good photo
2: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, alrighty. i think unless you guys have any other uh comments to add to the web news i think that we've gone through all the topics uh, any other com- comments questions or anything like that Alrighty, um, yeah, no. so, so we'll go through the wrap up, uh, David. I'll let you do a little bit of uh, self-plugging there on uh, on anything you want to do.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, feel free to find me online, people out there. Uh, I'm on Twitter, which is Ausstriker, austriker a u um, s t r i k e e r twenty seven, and then I I kind of a lot of my side projects right now are on hold, so there's not a lot to check out. But I do. I'm building a collection of websites that are made with a Laravel Spark, which is at madewithspark.com. And some of my client work you can find on lindallstudios.com. The Rainier Watch is that project I've mentioned previously. We've talked about a little bit. That's just rainierwatch.com, where you can find some sweet mountain-branded T-shirts and hats and that sort of thing. And then the project that Matt and I are kind of working on, but it's on the back burner um, right now, is the apex.com. Uh, just the a p p e x dot com. But um, you can find me on Instagram is Austriker a u s t r i k e e r. Sorry, one e, not two. But yeah, not uh, that's just kind of that's just kind of where I am online, I guess. Not really um, anything too crazy that's going on besides just living life and learning how to be a full time UI developer.
0: Uh, great. And uh, so I'll be uh, I'll be putting links to all that stuff in the show notes so you guys don't have to remember the spelling you can just find it right there in the uh, in the show notes yeah i just figured it'd be easier because we do the same thing yeah. um so uh thanks everybody for listening and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice you can find us on facebook and instagram at html all the things you can find us on twitter at html everything you can also find us on Medium and GitHub by checking by uh, searching up our name. Remember we're also on Patreon at patreon.com/html all the things, so give that a go. Feel free to comment or review on the platform you're listening to this on and we are signing off. Adios. HTML everything.